Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I'm the host of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This is our 140th episode, and it's going to be a little different. The thing is, I had an episode scheduled for this time with a guest, but it got canceled at the last minute, or rather put off to a later date at the last minute, which was yesterday. So I was left without one to record today for Sunday when you're hearing it. I thought about what to do and considered the possibility of doing something I haven't done so far and I'm not sure is particularly wise to do, but I figured I'd give it a try. I'm calling it Ruminations 1. If it seems to work, there'll be a 2 and a 3 down the road. If it doesn't seem to work, well, Ruminations 1 will be the end of the line for Ruminations. And what the hell does Ruminations mean? It means I haven't prepared for this. I have no outline. I have nothing to read. I'm just sitting with a microphone and we'll talk about what comes to mind in the hopes that the spontaneity of that and the fluidity of that or whatever you want to call it will offset any inadequacies as a result of not having planned in advance. I don't think this is so wise myself, but I'm told that a lot of people do it very successfully and that audiences seem to like it. We'll see. I find it particularly hard to do. I'm not actually sure why. I don't find it difficult to answer questions, uh, to do interviews, of which I've done an awful lot, or to do talks even just off a loose outline. But there's audience for those things. In this particular case, I'm talking to this stupid-looking microphone, and there are no people about. And that seems to make it very difficult for me. I'm not entirely sure why. Anyway, that being the case, here's my first thought. Last night, sitting in my little TV computer room, I watched, well, first I actually finished watching a Netflix series titled Chair. This series, new, but which I've already binged, is about a school and in particular its English department and in particular some characters and what's going on is a uh, aside from the general life of the of the department and conflicts every day and so on it also has at its heart a conflict over a particular faculty person I won't give away the plot, but doing something which is taken as offense by large numbers of uh, students, particularly students of color, and there's a big conflict, and so on, including a trial, or sort of a trial anyway, and uh, what have you. And then, to finish off that evening, I watched an old movie, Inherit the Wind. That's a movie that's about the Scopes trial. The movie was made, I'm pretty sure, in 1960, but the Scopes trial, I'm pretty sure, was in the mid-20s, maybe even 1925. The Scopes trial was about uh, natural selection. It was about evolution in schools. Uh, the, the case was brought, or a case was brought against Scopes, uh, it's a different name in the movie, for teaching evolution, natural selection, Darwin's book, in his class, I guess it was a high school, I don't even remember. Anyway, two very famous individuals, I won't ruin the movie, come to town, and there's this big uh, conflict and court scene and so on. And what I found fascinating was 
Um, on the one hand, these are about completely different things. And on the other hand, there are some uh, analogies to be drawn and made. Outside of the analogies, the two things juxtaposed to each other are interesting, to me at least, for the contrast in production styles. What, what it actually looks like on the screen, how they filmed it, and, and what they're conveying. For the acting, which is also at least to my eyes, quite different. Uh, good in both cases, but quite different. For the use of text, compared to all the other movies afoot nowadays, or virtually all the other movies afoot, text is incredibly prominent in both these. There's no pyrotechnics and, and the like. Hollywood finds a way in the second one, the chair, to to avoid too much substance and to inject um, what it deems to be acceptable drama with a child and so on. But nonetheless, it's got a lot more substance than most, most Hollywood-created uh, movies or Netflix or what have you. So it's the difference between how they try and convey the substance, the kind of substance they convey, but also the, the sort of mindset that's revealed in various constituencies in each film. So I recommend uh, looking at them, and I even recommend, uh, if you're anything like me, looking at them in some kind of juxtaposition. Just as a side value, I just got off the phone with a close friend of mine not uh, 15 or 20 minutes ago, and he recommended that I watch another series uh, that you can binge. It's called... uh, Ugh, now can I remember the name? I joked with him that I wouldn't remember the name. I think it's Bogan, and I know it's Danish, so if you look under the international films in uh, Netflix, I'm sure you can, you know, scroll down and find one that is either B-O-G-A-N or B-O-G-E-N or whatever, and it's Danish. I haven't seen it yet. My friend, uh, actually Steve Shalom, told me that uh, it was worth viewing. Earlier today, I read an article, uh, because I do Znet, I get a ridiculous amount of, of material via some techniques uh, to look at each day and to uh, choose for, for Znet, uh, to look at, to get content from, and so on. Anyway, one of the things I saw, which I didn't put up, uh, talked about Trump giving a talk in Alabama, or a speech in Alabama, in which he discussed COVID and in which he apparently uh, told people they should get vaccinated. And he was booed by the audience of people who obviously were Trump supporters going there to hear Trump. And I found this rather disturbing when I read it. I know that in some ways it feels like, okay, (laughs) finally he's getting booed even by the people who, who adore him. Yeah, but the flip side of that is that these particular people are even more wedded to COVID uh, as a as a plot or as a lie or as a whatever they have in mind than they are wedded to Trump. If he violates that that uh, storyline, suddenly he gets booed. That's disturbing partly for how deeply it says those commitments are held, and partly because, well, you know, if Trump can't talk that audience out of uh, rejecting the vaccine, 
it isn't obvious that anybody's going to be able to in anything like the timeline that it's important to accomplish that. And that brings us to COVID writ larger. I don't know about any of you, but I at least quite nervous about what's unfolding. It seems to me that the evidence is clear that this particular virus is capable of mutations that significantly alter its dynamics in the world. And that's disturbing. And it's not disturbing just because, okay, there can come along a variant that's more uh, transmissible, which we seem to have uh, in in the variant that's now sweeping the country. It's also disturbing because it suggests that how far off are we from a variant which not only becomes more catching, but also more lethal. And this means that the importance, if it's true, of diminishing the the prevalence of COVID and the spread of COVID in any variant is uh, really quite extreme. It isn't extreme only, although it is, for the damage that it's doing at the moment, that's bad enough, but it's extreme Uh, because it's necessary to sort of cut off the potential or reduce the potential for an even much deadlier variant, one perhaps that is more lethal, spreads quicker, and is resistant to current vaccines. So I don't mean to spin out a nightmare. That is the COVID nightmare, obviously. But I just mean to say that the there's something about society now that is really sort of mind-boggling, which is that a threat can, you know, all the time, the government and the media, they talk about threats and they mobilize against threats. Set aside, you know, our sophisticated analyses of the way the world works for a minute. They do that all the time. We know they do that all the time. Well, there are some threats that actually do exist, they're not manufactured, and their scale is enormous. So one threat whose scale is enormous, we now understand, is pandemic, especially when there's one that is in process and might mutate. Another threat that's enormous, and how anybody cannot see it anymore, or can continue to refuse to see it, is sort of remarkable, come to that in a minute, and that's, of course, ecological disasters, climate change, and others. And and these threats are on a scale that that so dwarfs the usual threats that are manufactured. You know, the threat that Iran is to the United States, or the threat that immigration is to wherever, or the threat that... It's hard to even enunciate these things. But these real threats do exist. And when you think about them, they're even bigger, say, than the threat of, of World War II was, than the threat of the Nazis was. Not because they've already killed more people than the Nazis. No, that's not the case. But because the reach of these actual threats, and you can add to the ones I mentioned, the threat of nuclear war, is so devastating. The, 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 the possible ramifications of their continuation is just beyond belief. And so you wonder why it isn't sort of obvious that the approach to these threats should not be nickel and diming it. It should not be, you know, pussyfooting around whether or not 
we're ready to deal with it. It should be more like the way, say, the Manhattan Project was undertaken against the threat of a possible nuclear weapon from Germany, which, by the way, was not in the offing. That kind of approach to a devastating threat uh, makes some sense. Uh, it could be done poorly or well. That's what the debate should be now. It shouldn't be over small-scale reactions to climate change or to the pandemic. It should be over how to massively respond in desirable ways. And if we're not sure about desirable ways, how to massively respond in two ways, so at least we cover the threat. That that isn't happening is really an incredible commentary on the power of market systems, indoctrination, and ideology to bend rationality into a pretzel that pays no attention to reality. Because that's what's happening and brings us back to that movie, Inherit the Wind, where you see a lot of that. And in Chair, you see a lot of that. So how does it happen? I don't know. You know, what, what can we say? How can a set of people dying of a disease, and this has happened, it happened in South Dakota months back, dying of a disease, COVID, say to the people caring for them, what have I got? Answer, COVID-19. What have I got? I can't have COVID-19. It doesn't exist. Meanwhile, the person's dying. That's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible that we can see statistics which are just undeniable and deny them. But then when there starts to be, in the case of climate change, all of these manifestations around the world, Greece is burning, Turkey is burning, Italy is on the verge of burning, Western United States burning, water shortages, floods. How can it be that people see all that and they just, they just come up with spin to make it go away? I don't know the answers to these questions. We can all sort of hypothesize. It has to do with preserving our view of ourself. We've said it in the past. We have to keep saying it or else we are wrong and we don't want to be wrong. That's one possible explanation. A self-servingness that, that gets in the way of objectivity. In other words, say, you know, say executives of oil companies and of other organizations that are in fact behaving in or blocking reaction to dealing with, say, climate change, or the pharmaceutical companies literally murdering people all over the world. Presumably, it's, a, it's years and years and years of, of a certain kind of mindset, plus the pressure of making profits in the short term, plus the pressure and the desire to believe that having done so in the past was justified that prevents one from seeing the truth. I don't know. Whatever the answer is, this ought to be what people are finding a way to overcome. Finding a way to overcome the objectively, demonstrably, clearly suicidal views that many, 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 many people, and I really mean many, many, cling to, including people on the left at times. It brings up the issue of journalism. What should it be? What can it do? You know, 
I do a website, Znet, and I've done this kind of stuff for God knows how long. And nowadays, there's more flow of material than I can remember there ever having been. And on the one hand, that's a good thing. It means more people are writing, more people are expressing themselves. But does it mean more people are reading? That I'm not so sure of. And does it mean more people are trying to express themselves in a unique way, in a way that adds to the total rather than being redundant of the total? That I'm not sure of either. As I look at the material that comes in, so much of it replicates, so much of it is a reflex reaction to events and not a careful trying to discern something that others aren't already saying or haven't already said. It seems to me that it isn't clear what the motives are of even alternative journalism, much less mainstream journalism at this point. Are we trying to contribute to the development of a mindset and a set of commitments and a set of behaviors that try and change society in the short run alleviating pain and suffering in the longer run, getting rid of the causes of pain and suffering and replacing them with new relations. Is that what we're trying to do? Or are we trying to just report, tell people what's going on, even, even if doing so is just repeating what's already all over the place? Or even if doing so is just reinforcing skepticism, cynicism, doubt, hopelessness? I don't know. I worry about those things. Having advertised a couple of movies, series, on TV that people might choose to watch, be entertained by, and maybe even be provoked by, I have another kind of advertisement that comes to mind. I um, put together some time ago a school for social and cultural change. It's actually arguably a reincarnation of one that I had put together uh, years ago, many years ago. It now exists, it's hosted on a uh, platform called Teachable, and it involves people teaching courses there for eight weeks. Each week, the f instructor of the particular course, I think there's 10 set for the next session, which is October, November, the instructor uh, puts up some readings, perhaps a video, a lecture, um, maybe uh, additional optional readings, whatever they choose. Uh, and there are eight weeks of that. And in each week, there's also a, a Zoom session. So that's a live gathering of the students and the instructor. And the idea here is to explore issues and uh, whether it be sort of analysis of existing relations or theoretical tools for doing that, or vision for what we want for society, or strategy for how we hope to get it, whatever it be about, uh, the idea is to not do one-liners or tweet quotes or um, just attacks on somebody who thinks somebody something other than what oneself thinks, but to actually explore the issues, to actually pursue them over a period of time with discussion and debate and elaboration to try and actually change the way we think about something. Well, I think that's a worthwhile thing, and I think that's something that is rather different from some of what exists on the Internet. And so I shamelessly want to urge you 
to take a look at SSCC, the School for Social and Cultural Change. It's at sscc.teachable.com, but you can also find links to it on Znet. I'll even go further. I'll shamelessly promote my own course on it for October, November. There are eight-week sessions, and in between the eight-week sessions, there's a month off to uh, promote, and so I'm doing that uh, a few days short of September. September will be the time for promotion and the time for people to sign up for courses, which you can do by going uh, straight to Teachable or by going to Znet and seeing the, uh, the links. And uh, the course I'm doing is titled No Bosses, A New Economy for a Better World. In the prior couple of sessions of, of the school, I did it uh, titled Life After Capitalism. And now I changed the title. And the reason I changed the title is because I have a book coming out likely in October, right during the course, uh, which has that title. And so I'll use chapters from the book as... Uh, lectures, and I will uh, have additional readings, as I did in the prior sessions, and then also there'll be a Zoom session each week. These things go on for quite a while, uh, and people can come and go, of course, uh, but sometimes I'm on there for three hours, where people are talking about the content of the week. And I hope that uh, maybe you'll be interested in doing that. What? It, why? Well, because it's pursuing the problem of what a person who is against capitalism might wish to say they are for. And I think that, as I've countlessly times argued, and I won't repeat now, I think it's important to be able to answer that question, what are we for? Partly for hope, partly for desire, partly to be able to orient our choices in the present so that they lead toward what we want, partly to plant the seeds of the future in the present, and so on. So, uh, and there are many other courses, well, no, I think this time there are nine other courses, maybe there'll be 10 or 11 other courses, I'm not sure, uh, to choose from, and they're diverse and uh, uh, virtually all unusual in some respect, and all of high quality in all respects. So I hope you'll consider the possibility of looking at them. So that's my ruminations for today. Is this approach of any merit? I have no idea. I just did it. Uh, soon I will edit it, and I probably, to be honest, won't like it much, but I'll put it up anyway. And if you do like it, you should let me know by email, and there'll be more ruminations. And if I, you don't like it, well, you don't have to let me know. Silence will be taken as not liking it. So there we are. And uh, that said, this is Mike Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.